You're listening to a sermon preached at University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website, theupc.org. Authority, defiance, subversion. Those are three words that we're going to be looking at in our story this morning. It's a chain of events that it seems like we're pretty familiar with in our times, isn't it? I mean, just think about this week in uh, either nationally or things that are going on in our church, things that go on in your own life, in your own workplace, this chain of events of authority, defiance, and subversion. Do you have something in mind? Can you think of something? Yeah? So now do something I always ask my students to do when I'm teaching at Seattle Pacific. Would you please turn to a person near you, someone you came with or somebody you didn't, and tell them what you just thought of. Okay? I'm not kidding. So turn to somebody around and tell them, what did you think of? That, that typifies that chain of events of authority, defiance, and subversion. Go for it. Okay, I'm going to give you like 10 more seconds, so switch sides. And actually, if you need an example, another example of authority, defiance, and subversion, there were a number of you that just didn't even bother doing that. <laughs> but this is, this is the chain of events we're looking at today. Um, at first blush, today's stories from Acts seems to fit this pattern. Authority, defiance, subversion. It's a pattern that is, uh, seems to be repeated with greater and greater uh, both anxiety and fervor in the context that we're living in right now. Um, and you'll remember we're in this sermon series called, uh, from the book of Acts called Turning the World Upside Down. When George started us out a couple weeks ago, we looked at four practices that this early Jesus movement was engaged in in order to stay deeply rooted and connected to Jesus' mission. They met together in each other's homes. They dedicated themselves to the breaking of bread together and to prayer and to learning from the apostles' teaching. Uh, we also learn that they go to the temple to, to worship, and, uh, and also they witness the signs and wonders of the apostles. We looked at that last week, the way that God's power that God had given to Jesus for Jesus' words and Jesus' works continued through Jesus' followers to extend God's salvation mission in the world. And the story last week was about a healing that occurred. Now, between last week's story and this week's story, um, a few things happened that we're going to see repeated in the book of Acts. Uh, there was um, a, a controversy inside the church about money, the story of Ananias and Sapphira. Next week, there'll be another controversy about money. Uh, Ryan's preaching on that, the story of the deacons. And then in between that, there are stories of conflict with the religious authorities. Um, this week, we're looking at a conflict that all the apostles were called in before the temple authorities. Um, and in two weeks, Bianca will be preaching on the conflict that led to the stoning of the first martyr, Stephen. But this pattern is going on in the church. Um, and this week, we want to look at Acts 5, this story of authority and defiance and, and subversion, and see what we have to learn about it in our time. It's on page 889 in your pew Bibles, and it's really a monster. I mean, it's a long story. We're looking at verses 27 to verse 42, and what's happened is the temple authorities, you know, there's all this healing going on. There's all this commotion. They really feel they need to shut this down. They have all the apostles arrested this time, not just Peter and John, 
all the apostles. They throw them in jail. Overnight, the Lord sends an angel, a messenger of the Lord, that takes the apostles out of prison, apparently relocks the doors behind them, and then says to him, you need to go back to the temple and keep preaching. So the next morning, it's like a Laurel and Hardy show. The entire council of the Sanhedrin is, is waiting for these apostles to be brought from the jail, and they can't be found when someone walks in and says, uh, they're back in the temple. So they send their whip over to get them, and rather than arrest them because they fear a riot on the part of the crowd. This is how popular the apostles and their message was. Uh, they asked them to come and appear, and the apostles go with them. So we're picking up the story at that point. I do want to read it together, but it's too long for everybody to read all the time. So we're going to stand up, and I'm going to have this side read the first paragraph with me, right? And you all listen. You don't have to do it in a round. Don't worry. So you'll be reading with me. This side, you're going to pick up then at verse 33, the next paragraph, and read with me, and then all of us will finish it. So let's stand and read together. Acts 5. Verse 27, it's on page 889 of your pew Bibles. We'll, we'll start on this side. Listen carefully. We're hearing the word of the Lord. Uh, balcony, you can figure out what you want to read, right? <laughs> Acts 5:27. When they had brought them, they had them stand before the council. The high priest questioned them, saying, We gave you strict orders not to teach in this name. Yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you are determined to bring this man's blood on us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than any human authority. The God of our ancestors raised up Jesus, whom you had killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior, that he might give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things, and so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. And picking up at 33, when they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law respected by all the people, stood up and ordered the men to be put outside for a short time. Then he said to them, fellow Israelites, consider carefully what you propose to do to these men. For some time ago, Thutis rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400, joined him, but he was killed. And all who followed him were dispersed and disappeared. After him, Judas the Galilean rose up at the time of the census and got people to follow him. He also perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. Because if this plan or this undertaking is of human origin, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. In that case, you may even be found fighting against God. And together, they were convinced by him. And when they had called in the apostles, they had them flogged. Then they ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. As they left the council, they rejoiced that they were considered worthy to suffer dishonor for the sake of the name. And every day in the temple and at home, they did not cease to teach and proclaim Jesus as the Messiah. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Go ahead and be seated. So authority here 
is at the center in the issue of this story. Uh, it's an authority that is communal. Uh, which of these governing groups, if you will, has the authority of God, the power of God, be behind them? Uh, is it the council, the temple council, the Sanhedrin, or is it these apostolic witnesses? Now, the temple authority, the Sanhedrin, that's the ruling body of the temple. And there's two different groups in the Sanhedrin you should know about. There's one group called the Sadducees. They were the majority group. They were especially associated with the temple and Jerusalem. Uh, they did not believe in the resurrection of the dead. So they were sad, you see? <laughs> and, and they're in the ascendancy here. The minority group in the council are the Pharisees. The Pharisees we're very familiar with because that particular group of, of scribes and teachers of the law were out among the people and had the support of the people, and they were oftentimes in conflict with Jesus over issues of purity and how you followed the law. Um, and these two groups are there. Now note, before our passage, that the captain of the temple, when he was sent over to arrest them, uh, they were very uh, aware and of the possibility of a riot. So the Pharisees are very important for preventing uh, disrest uh, and unrest among the people. Um, and we know from last week, though, that God is working with power through the apostles. Last week's incident of healing, all these incidents of healing that are happening in the story of Acts, established the fact that Jesus' power to save, that Jesus' words and Jesus' work um, to God's salvation purposes continue through Jesus' followers. So the question here is, who has the authority to match that power of God? Who is, is there a dog in here? Anyway, the question is, that has never happened before when I was preaching, but that dog agreed that that is at the center of the story. But the question is, you want authority that matches the power of where God, and for, for centuries, for generations, right, the temple was the expected place where God would dwell when God returned. And when the Messiah came, it was expected that God would retake up God's dwelling in the temple. Now, what the apostles are going around and preaching is that God chose to dwell in a person, in this man, Jesus of Nazareth. Remember, Jesus said, you can destroy, destroy this temple, and in three days, I'll rebuild it again. I'll raise it again. And they realized, his disciples, after he rose from the dead, that what Jesus meant by a temple was his body. His body had become the dwelling place of God. And that the resurrection is the three days when it was rebuilt. So what the apostles' message was announcing was that God's power had moved in the age of the Messiah from the temple out into the people by the Holy Spirit. Um, and it's a, it's a bold announcement of the gospel together with a demonstration of God's power that brings the apostles in direct conflict with these temple authorities. Now, this is a conflict that will be repeated over and over in, in the book of Acts and even in church history, isn't it? That when people boldly proclaim the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ and live under that proclamation, counterfeit authorities, counterfeit human authorities uh, are threatened. Um, and see it as, as, a, as, a, as a conflict. And I want you to notice as well in the passage, see if you look here from verse um, 29 forward at the way when, when Peter and all the other apostles, after they say they need to obey God's authority, their answer to this particular charge that they are not only being defiant to the command not to preach 
And their answer to that, of course, is, you know, we have to obey God and not human authority, don't we? Uh, it's God's messengers who showed up and said, you need to get back into the temple. That's a pretty clear directive from God. So everyone in that room should agree that you obey God's authority rather than the human authority. And they say, that's what we're doing. We are not in defiance of God in doing what we're doing. In fact, they say, to answering the charge of subversion. In fact, you are in defiance of God. And look at all the exalting language, all the authority language that they use. They say, um, they call Jesus uh, the one that God has raised up. Now, that may be talking about his resurrection. More likely, I think, it's a, it's a messianic term because when Mary was responding to the fact that the angel said that she would give birth to the Savior and the Messiah, in her Magnificat, in her song that she sings, she praises God for having raised up a Savior in the line of David. So here's the claim that the authority of the Messiah is in this man, Jesus. And not only that, and they had messed up because they killed him on a tree, but not only that, but God has exalted Jesus at the right hand. And our version says as leader and savior, that word for leader, it, it should be prince. It's the highest authority at the right hand of God. So everything in this is a claim that Jesus is the highest authority, that it's through Jesus that God has made his authority known, that it's in Jesus that God has dwelled. And not only that, if you look at the last thing they say, we're witnesses to these things, that Jesus is the one. The gospel and Jesus have replaced the law and the temple as, as the ones who tell how God is saving the world and through which people receive salvation. Jesus is the authority on this, they say. And not only that, but the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey Jesus. Now, this is highly technical language for obedience. The normal language for obedience in the New Testament is, is, is a word family that, looks, that talks about obeying what you've heard. That's the normal obedience language. In the original language, this is very technical here. It's very rarely used. It's an obedience that is specific to a hierarchical authority. So it's, it's a compound word that means to obey authority. So it's not saying that the Holy Spirit is only given to people who obey and do everything right. That's a whole other discussion. This is a specific looking at the center of power in the temple and saying the Holy Spirit, the power and authority of God is with Jesus and those who acknowledge that Jesus is the exalted authority, the dwelling place of God, and they obey that authority. So you can see why the council was wanting to kill them. Uh, this, is, this, is, this is incredible confrontation. This is saying that there's been a tectonic shift in the, in the plates in terms of how God works salvation in the world and that God's power and God's authority has moved from the law and the temple to the person of Jesus Christ of Nazareth and those who are given the Holy Spirit and sent to preach in his name. So this is essentially an authority story. And, uh, and we like an authority story, partly because we are Western and we're individuals, and partly because just we're human. We tend to be people who question authority. And we're meant in this story to identify and to root on the apostles, which is also that works with us culturally, doesn't it? I mean, we're Protestants. We protested 500 years ago the established authority of the Roman Catholic Church. Those are, those are our roots, right? So we are a people who, who love and root for anybody who takes on a counterfeit authority. Um, I, especially 
we like a story that talks about the wielding of a secondary authority being exposed as foolish and, and potentially destructive. Um, I came across, did, you, did any of you in, like on your Facebook feed or in your email ever get the story about the DEA official and the Texas ran rancher? Have any of you heard this one? So this DEA Department of um, the Drug Enforcement Agency officer, he goes to this rancher in Texas. And I don't know if the story's true or not, but it's pretty good, right? <laughs> so these stories are true. I'm not sure about this one, but I like this story. The DA officer, he stops at this ranch in Texas and he talks with this old rancher and he tells this rancher, I need to inspect your ranch for illegally grown drugs. And the rancher says, okay, fine. Fair enough, but don't go into that field over there. And he points out the location and the DEA officer just verbally explodes on him. Mister, I have the authority of the federal government with me. And reaching into his rear pants pocket, he removes his badge. He proudly displays it to the rancher. He says, see this badge? This badge means I am allowed to go wherever I wish on any land. No questions asked, no answers given. Have I made myself clear? Do you understand? So the rancher kind of nods, politely apologizes, goes about his chores. Well, in a little while, the old rancher heard loud screams, and he looks up, and he sees this DEA officer running for his life in this field, being chased by the rancher's big Santa Gertrudis bull. <laughs> and with every step, this bull is gaining on this officer. It seems likely that he's going to be gored before he reaches safety. The officer is clearly terrified, so the rancher throws down his tools. He runs over to the fence. He yells at the top of his lungs, you're back! Show him your badge. <laughs> now, I love that story. Why do we love this story? We love to see the wielding of a secondary authority in foolish and potentially destructive ways subverted and exposed. Uh, we're both Protestants and we're American which means our roots are in protesting this, uh, the ab abuse of power and making choices that subvert that power. And so, of course, we're going to read this story as pretty much a straight-line authority-defiant subversion, and we're going to cheer for the apostles. And that's a good reading, because the way Luke's written it, we're supposed to cheer for the apostles. We're supposed to recognize that the apostles are now the legitimately ordained uh, group of leaders who announce and enact the gospel. Luke's belief and the belief of the early church is that the temple authorities are no longer the legitimate authority in matters of salvation and life. They no longer represent God's words and God's work in the world. But there's something more than that going on here, and we need to pay attention to it. In fact, I would suggest there's three things we particularly need to pay attention to these days. One of the things that questions this idea of reading this as a straight authority defiance subversion is that everyone is under authority in the story, and everyone knows it. There's a recognition that all human authority is under the authority of God, that all human authority is secondary to divine authority. So that's not in question. The question is simply whether or not it's the apostles or the temple that are going to continue to be the center of God's words and work in the world. So let's speak candidly for a moment as a people who need to learn to engage with wisdom and as part of God's purposes as the followers of Jesus in this world when it comes to authority and human authority and church authority and defiance and, sub and uh, subversion. That if we are to make sure that in our words and our works we are joining in the apostles 
and the authority and the power that God gave them, then we need to know the apostolic witness. This is essential. And for us, as Protestants, the apostolic witness is given to us in the scriptures. Uh, when I teach Christian scriptures at Seattle Pacific, one of the things we talk about the first day or two is how the Bible is the holy, one and holy apostolic witness, just as the church is one holy apostolic church. And that phrase, calling it apostolic, is a little confusing all the time. So we discuss the fact that it's not only the New Testament which captures the witness of these apostles and what these apostles testify to, but the Old Testament is also essential because the Old Testament was the scriptures of the early church. When you go through and read through these speeches and acts, you'll see that these apostles at this church steeped themselves in the scripture of the law and the prophets in order to fully understand who Jesus Christ of Nazareth was and what God's mission and work in the world is. And it is of a concern to me that as we try to interact with discretion and wisdom, with authority in, in, in our world and among ourselves as an institution, that, that I am concerned that we're often not rooted enough and not steeped enough in the scriptures. We're often not rooted enough and not steeped enough in the authority of the scriptures. And when we talk about the authority of the scriptures, we're talking about the scriptures as a witness, as the witness that the apostles and the prophets gave to how God speaks and how God works in the world. It's a foolishness to think that our authority will continue to be under the authority of the God revealed in Jesus Christ if we are not steeped in and living in light of and under the authority of the witness of the apostles and the prophets through the scriptures. So I want to invite us and challenge us as a congregation to continue to steep ourselves in these scriptures. Uh, in our small groups, many of our small groups, we don't spend enough time in scripture. Uh, in, in this, this fall, the, there's a group of young adults who are working with me, and we're planning a six-week, two, three-week classes on Wednesday night, starting that last Wednesday in September. Three weeks looking at the Old Testament, three weeks looking at the New Testament, looking at what our story is. And many of these young adults that I was speaking with said what they really long for is for other older Christians in the church to come join them in this class so that they have mentors, and there's an intergenerational gathering that learns together what it means to live within the story that Scripture gives us. If we think that we can live and work and speak as a people under the authority of Jesus Christ without listening to the witness of the Scriptures, we are fooling ourselves, and we will operate foolishly in the world. Because we are a people who work with an authority that is not our own. The apostles' posture is that of men under authority, and this is essential, because we are a people under God's authority. Does the world look at the church and see a gathering of people who do not claim an authority unto themselves? Does the world look at the church and see a gathering of people who believe that we live under authority? We are loved. This is true. Amen. And we are saved. This is true. Absolutely. Amen. And we are people who live under grace. This is true. Absolutely. Amen. And we are also a people under authority. How do you do with authority? See, apostolic authority isn't actually their authority at all. It's Jesus' authority as prince and savior of the world, sending them and sending us to continue the message and the work of salvation. So this is the first thing to notice, is that everybody there was called to be under the authority of God, not human authority. In fact, all human authority is under God's authority. 
But there's two other things that happen in this story that specifically de-escalate this old pattern of authority and defiance and subversion, that de-escalate this pattern in a way that is really redemptive. And it seems to me we have a lot to learn from it. And the first one that happens actually comes from a very unexpected person. So, so there's three words that I want us to remember right alongside these words, authority and defiance and subversion. And those words are restraint, dishonor, and joy. Now, the person who speaks for restraint is this man, Gamaliel. I told you he's a, that the Pharisees were the ones who were working against any uprising among the people. Gamaliel was widely respected. There's, there's writings about Gamaliel in the extra-biblical literature at the time. And when Gamaliel died, it, they wrote, Since Rabbi Gamaliel the elder died, there has been no more reverence for the law. And purity and abstinence died out at the same time. He's a highly respected man. And what we learn from Gamaliel goes right in line from what we learn when we, when we study the Old Testament. Because Gamaliel told them to leave these men alone. Why? Because he warned them that he doesn't engage with the truth of their claims. Did you notice that? He actually leans into the divine involvement with human history. If this is from God, he says, you can't stop it. It's the message the prophets gave to the kings of Israel when they said, it could very well be that God is using the empire of Babylon and no one wanted to hear it. It's a clear warning that the authority of the council depends entirely on their obedience to God's ways and God's word. And so the restraint that Gamaliel calls for is a restraint based on discernment of God's word and God's work in the world. The basic logic is there have been other messianic pretenders, and once they were killed, the movement dissipated. But in many ways, it seems like Gamaliel is, has caught the, um, the fact that there are things happening here that can't be explained in human terms. Men are being released from jail with no explanation other than divine intervention. Signs and wonders continue. So he gives a remarkable expectation, and it's wise. We do not want to be discovered fighting God, he says. Leave them alone. Now, as a church in the West, I wonder, do we respond with restraint that characterize people who know and believe that God is actively involved in the workings of the world? Is this how we're perceived? Reflect where you are as a steward of authority, whether you're in an institution or a family system or an area of civic engagement or involvement. Do your actions testify that you are a person who believes that God is actively in work? So you can pray and discern and act with restraint to seek and to look where God is working. Is God acting? Where and how? Our UPC session has just reorganized, you know, for more time dedicated to discernment, which is asking the question, where is God at work and how do we submit to God's work? How do we participate? What if the church in the West was more concerned about the foolishness of fighting God then we were concerned about defending our authority. See, what if restraint was no longer a sign of weakness? According to this story, it seems that restraint is a sign of obedience to the authority of a God who remains active in the workings of the world. And then there's a second thing that happens that disrupts just the escalation of the pattern of authority and defiance and subversion. And that is the response of the apostles when they did receive the 40 lashes minus one, which is no small punishment. Did you notice their response? They rejoiced that they were considered worthy of dishonor for the name. 
So the first is restraint when we find ourselves as stewards of institutions or powers. The second is response when we find ourselves on the receiving end of dishonor or shame. We are a people who live under the authority of Jesus Christ and identify with Jesus Christ. We don't live under the authority, ultimately, of any particular government or party. We don't live under the authority, ultimately, of any particular religious tradition. We do not live under the authority, ultimately, of biology. We do not live under the authority, ultimately, of any name other than the name of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And to live under the name of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ is to be radically identified with the cross of Jesus Christ. The essential identification for a church to faithfully and legitimately speak and act in the name of Jesus is identification with the cross of Jesus Christ, not in the power and the glory and the victory of Jesus Christ, the cross of Jesus Christ. Notice the cross at the center of the testimony to the council. They're not organizing a counter-movement. There's no rebellion that they're inciting in the temple, which is one of the fears of leadership. They rejoice at the honor of suffering dishonor at a time of culture where that was devastating because they know their Lord and Savior Jesus Christ the way Isaiah described him. In Isaiah 53, he was despised and rejected of men. Or again in the Psalms, he hid not his face from shame and spitting. How do we as Christians in the West participate in the power of Jesus and also exercise the authority of Jesus in a way that remains faithful? We identify ourselves with humility and shame and suffering for the sake of the cross. Peter would write a letter to suffering Christians many years after this encounter with the religious authorities in Jerusalem. It's in 1 Peter chapter 2, and here's what he writes. When he was abused, he did not return abuse. When he suffered, he did not threaten. But he entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in the body on the cross, so that free from sins we might live for righteousness by his wounds you have been healed. That's in the context of how Christians respond to abusive masters, to the abuse of human authority. And if we're honest as Western American Christians who hold the deeply common conviction concerning the protection of human dignity, this is an offense of the cross. And you can see, can't you, why we need to become deeply rooted in the biblical witness to Jesus, to the Old Testament and New Testament alike, because this is contrary to our human nature. And when I want to reject these choices and instead crusade, one simple question brings me back. Is this pattern of authority and defiance and subversion actually resulting in the healing of the nations? Is it producing the joy of God's salvation? What if those outside the church witnessed an institution that responded with prayerful restraint with threats to her authority, dependent on discernment together rather than heavy-handed and violent attempts to silence those who defy her authority. And equally, what if those outside the church witnessed us, people in the church, who respond to disgrace or suffering as a direct result of obedience to Jesus' authority, with this crazy mixture of joy at being counted worthy to suffer for the sake of Jesus' name and boldness to continue to announce and embody the good news? Aren't those the surprising choices that align ourselves with the work in the word of Jesus Christ and ultimately turn the world upside down? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, no one expected you. 
And we pray that you would lead us in your work and your will. We pray that you would reveal yourself, reveal God to us in the scriptures. We pray that you would give us the grace to act with restraint, to believe that you are active in the world and you are not failing to judge, to seek your actions in the world. We pray you give us restraint and that you also give us a willingness to live with misunderstanding and dishonor. We pray especially, Lord, for your church in, in the world, in places where our brothers and sisters are suffering, for boldly proclaiming your name. We pray vindication and relief on their behalf. And mostly, Lord, we pray that your name will be exalted and glorified, and you will be honored. It's in your name we pray. Amen. For more UPC audio or to find out about service times, visit us at upc.org. All online audio is available on CD and cassette. To order copies of sermons and classes, please visit upc.org audio, email audio at upc.org, or call 206-524-7301, extension 117.